Uh, it comes from the Greek word exousia, it, it, and it literally translates pow, uh, the, the right to use of power. But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that word translated power is the Greek word dunamis, and it literally means miraculous power or the ability to accomplish things. And we said that, going back to the example of the police officer, the police officer has a badge that represents the authority that says he has the legal right to, if you don't respect his authority, he can go to the dunamis, right? He can go to the gun and have power to enforce the laws of the city. So, and one of the things, and, and notice this, one of the things we've pointed out about authority is, well, actually two things, and we want to make sure we understand this. Authority always flows from someone of higher rank or position to someone of lower rank and position. Amen. If you've ever been in the military, people that have been in the military, they understand this, right? Um, it flows from someone of higher position to a person of lower position. The President of the United States is the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States of America. That means every general in the, in the Army calls him sir because the, the power flows from him. He is, he is the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. Well, you understand this? The second thing we want you to remember is that authority always comes with conditions attached to it. You understand this, that, that a general in the, in the U.S. Army, as long as he's submitted to the, uh, the commands of the Commander-in-Chief, well, then he operates in the authority of a general. But you understand this, if he ever uh, rebels against the authority of the president, a buck private could, could arrest, uh, a private in the military police could arrest a four-star general because if he rebels against his source of authority, he invalidates his authority and he doesn't have it anymore. So, can, so authority always flows from someone of a higher rank and position to someone of a lower position, and it always has conditions, and the conditions are you just do the word. And we're talking about this in the context of believers. God has given us authority, and when we, op we can operate in that authority as long as we're in obedience to God's word. If we, become, if we come to a point where we disobey God's word, if we disobey the spirit, the Bible says you know, that we, we have become unrighteous because, remember, the word unrighteous is not a religious word. Right uh, righteousness if you are a righteous person in the vernacular of the language used, it meant you were in right standing with the governing authorities, right? If the posted speed limit's 35 and you're driving 34 or 35 miles an hour, you are righteous because you're in, you're in proper alignment with the governing authority. The authorities have said 35 miles per hour is the limit. When you go beyond that, you are in a position of unrighteousness and you are subject to punishment of being pulled over and being given a ticket, right? So we've uh, talked about... Uh, what authority was, we li then looked at what was the prerequisite to operating in the authority that, that the believer, that we have as believers. And, of course, this is it in a nutshell. That the prerequisite was we have to be submitted to God. The Bible says that if you will submit yourself to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from you. It says, uh, the book of James says, uh, I believe in James it says, submit yourself to God and he will exalt you in due season. You understand this? God doesn't, and that word exalt means to be picked up and cast out beyond the norm. It doesn't mean get in pride. Uh, and so God doesn't have a problem with his children being exalted if he's the one doing the exalting. Right? Because God wants you. The Bible says promotion comes from the Lord. Amen? God, what? God wants his children, he wants his sons in positions of influence because when we become in positions of influence, then the, we're able to advance the kingdom of God. Because this is the thing: if you're, you know, uh, if you uh, 
if you worked, when, when I worked in the, in, a, in the secular field, if I was just a, a worker, a line technician on a, on a production line for Pepsi-Cola, well, I could influence people. Uh, I had a small sphere of influence, but not because I had a position of authority delegated to me. But if I had been moved to a position of management where I had a, the whole production department underneath me, how many of you all know that you can preach without quoting Scripture? You can live biblical principles to people, and you can be that salt and light, and salt makes you thirsty. And people can get around you and say, man, there's just something about you. You, you, know, you, don't, you don't act like other people. You don't talk, you know, you're not talking like other people. You're not standing around the water cooler la- yucking it up at the dirty joke. You're not chasing around after the women in the secular world. What is it about you? There's something different. I want to know what it is. And so God wants his children to be in positions of authority. And so we have to be submitted, and then God will exalt you. It says he will lift you up. Uh, you know, then we began to look at, the third week, we looked at authority over the devil, demons, and unclean spirits that God has, has told us very plainly in his word that as believers, we have authority over the devil. We, it's, not, it's not the big bad devil. We look at some, we're going to look at some scriptures tonight. Uh, it's not the big bad devil. Hollywood, Hollywood's got this Hollywood version of the devil. You know, he's going to get in you and make you spin your head around and, and throw up like the little girl in Exodus, right? I mean, he's the big bad devil. And the devil does a real good job of portraying himself as someone big and bad and someone to be feared. But Jesus, was Jesus scared of the devil? No. Was Jesus scared or intimidated in the least bit by demon spirits? No. They'd come to him, talk, begging him. I mean, they'd run to him and say, oh, please don't cast us out. Please don't. And he said, shut up and come out. And he just said, shut up and come out. That's how Jesus handled demons. And we saw and we looked at how Jesus had power and authority over devils. Jesus called the twelve to him, and he said, I'm giving you authority over, the, over demons and, and devils. And then they went out, and they preached they had authority over them. Well, then we saw where the 70 came. So we're going beyond Jesus. Some people go, oh, yeah, but that was Jesus. Jesus had authority over demons. Okay, well, Jesus called the twelve to him. Oh, well, that was the twelve. Okay, well, then Jesus called uh, the 70 to him. Uh, okay, well, that was, that was the 70. Okay, well, then we see where uh, all through the New Testament, you had Paul, you had Peter. You had different people through the New Testament that were believers, that they had authority over the devil, over demons, and unclean spirits. Amen? So they walked in that authority. And so last week, we looked at authority in prayer, particularly in the area of intercession, how God told Ezekiel. He said, I was looking for a man to stand in the gap. I was looking for someone that would pray and intercede for a nation so that I wouldn't pour out my judgment on them for their sin, but I couldn't find anybody, and so I had to judge them. And so God's given us authority. And how Jesus said, and this is going back to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' pattern of prayer, Jesus said, in this way pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where on earth, just like it is in heaven. God is looking for believers to exercise the authority that he has given to us to pray and ask him to intervene on earth so that his will, just the way, how would God do it in heaven? When we pray about a certain situation, you ought to ask yourself, and this is biblical, when we're praying about something, how would God handle this situation in heaven? What would God want for this situation to be done? Because Jesus said, pray that God's will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So we need to be familiar with the word. We need to be familiar with God's spirit so that when we pray, that we're speaking to things and exercising the authority that God's given us, speaking his word and asking him to do on the earth, to handle it on the earth just the way he would in heaven. Amen? So 
This evening, we want to take a look at some of our key texts, Genesis chapter 128. This is just some of the texts that we have been looking at uh, this entire teaching. This is familiar scripture to most of you. Genesis 128, or I'm sorry, 126 through 28, I'm going to read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we've said that this is, we refer to this as the dominion commission. It's when God created man. Uh, I believe it's Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, when God, he's talking about what is man, that you're mindful of him. Uh, it said you have... Uh, uh, placed him uh, over all the works of your hand. Let me turn there real quick and just and let's, let me check this. Make sure I'm giving you the right thing. Amen. Psalms eight. Does that sound right to you, Brother Kirk? Psalms eight. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider uh, your uh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him, who's he talking about? Man. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And so God created man, God placed man in the garden, and God said, I'm giving you dominion or rule over all the works of my hands. And so, and so God's plan was, Adam, you have dominion, you have rule on the earth, and I want you to rule the earth just like, so that just like my will is in heaven is done on the earth. And how's that going to happen? God's going to come walk with you in the cool of the day, and God's going to speak to you, and God's going to tell Adam what his will is. Amen? So we see where, God, where man was originally given great authority on the earth. You can't exercise dominion if you're not given authority. Amen? And so the next scripture uh, that we want to look at is Matthew chapter 28. We know that things there in Genesis, it didn't stay that way long, right? Amen? God gave man dominion, uh, and then by chapter 3... The serpents came in, deceived Eve. She and Adam ate of the fruit. Um, they, when they sinned, they fell. And we've heard this question before. Adam didn't fall from heaven. Adam fell from dominion. Adam didn't lose a religion. Adam lost dominion. And that word dominion it become, really comes from the same word kingdom. Adam, Adam lost his dominion. God gave him dominion on earth. So he didn't fall from heaven. He didn't lose uh, religion. He, fell, he, lo he lost dominion. He lost the kingdom and the authority that God originally gave him. And so <coughs> God had a remedy. God had a plan. Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood to redeem mankind. And we see that after he's died, he's risen from the grave. Matthew 28, <coughs> verse 18. Jesus said, uh, came and spoke to them, the apostles, to his disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, <coughs> teaching them to observe all things. Amen? <coughs> Excuse me. So if we see that Jesus said 
what had been given to him? All authority. All authority had been given to him where? In heaven? Just in heaven? Amen? In heaven and on earth, right? So Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he says, go therefore. Now what the word, what's the word therefore mean? Because of this. <clears throat> so we could say it this way. Say, say that there was um, an election. Say there was a presidential election in this country. <clears throat> and one candidate was opposed to military action in one country, and he ran on the ticket of you know we're peace at all costs. We will not go to war. And then uh, another candidate said, you know what? This is an extreme threat to national security, whether it was or not. Okay, but they convinced people this is a, this is a legitimate cause for us to go to war. <coughs> they run for office. They get elected to office, and when they win, then when they're sworn in, they turn to the Joint Chiefs of Staff of, the, of all the branches of the military, and they say, I have been elected, the people of the United States of America have elected me as president, go therefore and start this war with this country. What he's saying is, because the authority, and remember, authority flows from someone of higher rank to people of lower rank, so he would be saying, I've been given authority, there, because of that, you go do this now. So Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of me. In other words, I'm delegating my authority to you. And what? And the authority means you have the right to enforce my will. What's his will? Jesus said, I only speak the things I hear the Father say. I only do the things I see the Father say. So, therefore, we know that the Bible tells us God's will. And we, and we know that the, we have, that the Holy Spirit will speak to us, and the Holy Spirit never contradicts the Word, right? If you hear something telling you to do something that's contrary to the Word, it's a, we were sharing this with Kirk and Jimmy before, so it's amazing how many people will say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to do that. I just felt like the Lord told me to, to do this. I just felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to do this. And it's contrary to the Word. The Holy Spirit will not tell anyone to do you know, People come up with, well, the Holy Ghost told me to lead my wife. Oh, please. Oh, the Holy Ghost told me, you know, to leave my husband. Please. You know, the Holy Ghost, that's contrary to the Word, right? That's contrary to the Word. And so, anyway, we, we, are, we, de we are delegated to operate in Jesus' authority. I want you to look at another place. We want to introduce this scripture this evening. I mean, we, we mentioned this earlier, but Ephesians chapter 1. We want you to understand that you do have authority as a believer. Jesus said, I'm, when Jesus was getting ready to leave over in John around the 14th, 15th, 16th chapter there, those are some of my favorite passages to read, is when Jesus is meeting with the disciples, his disciples, and he's telling them, look, I'm getting ready to go back to the Father. And one translation, he says, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He said, I'm, I'm going to send you the comforter. I'm going to send you, the, some translations say, the helper. In the Greek, it's literally the word uh, parakletos, and it's one who comes alongside and helps bear up a load. Another, another uh, nuance of that word is, is it was someone who took the position of a rear guard in a Greek phalanx. If someone was your, paraclete, uh, was your paraclete, they would come alongside in the thick of a battle, and they'd be your rear guard while you were fighting 
toward the front. And so Jesus is saying, I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you helpless. I won't leave you dependent. I'm going to send you a, a comforter. I'm going to send you a helper to help you uh, with this. And so I'm placing you in authority. You've been given authority. Our authority is in Him. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 5. It says, having predestined us to adoption as sons in Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, verse 15. Verse 15. Uh, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord uh, Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, see if this sounds familiar, those of you that are regular, say amen, that the, uh, Father, that the, Lord Je- the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I want to pause there for a minute. Where does it say Jesus is? Where did that verse just say Jesus is? Verse, verse 20 says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right. He, he's not. A, I, I, you know, I was listening to some teaching Pastor Earl was doing, actually transcribing some stuff for him, and I thought that it was so good. One thing he brought out, and this was a year and a half ago. Man, there's there's anointing in word that was brought forth years uh, a year and a half ago, right? He he was talking about. He said that the people of Israel missed their Messiah. Can we all agree that Jesus was the Messiah? That he was the Christ. He was the Anointed One. The people of Israel missed him the first time because they were looking for a king. They were looking for, because Christos means the anointed one, they were looking for a king that was going to come back and reestablish the earthly kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, and, re, and throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. So they missed him because when Jesus came the first time, he was the suffering servant. He was in the book of Isaiah that talks about the suffering servant that was smitten and stricken, yet we did not esteem him, right? He, he was that, so they missed him. He said, but what most preachers are preaching today is we're preaching suffering servant, and he's not the suffering servant anymore. He's the king now. He's raised from the grave. The Bible says that God raised him from the dead, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father now in the heavenly places. And on, on, he is seated at the right hand of God. And you understand that right hand of royalty, it represents power. It represents the favored side. It represents the authority. All authority has been given to me. So Jesus is not on the cross. He's not on the grave. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of authority. And this is the good part. I've told people before, how would you like to know that Jesus was praying for you personally? Well, what's the Bible say? Jesus has a modern-day ministry. He's not just sitting up there on the throne twiddling his thumbs waiting you know, for the rapture. It says he sits that he is at the right hand of the Father and he is forever making intercession for the saints. Think about it. Jesus is when when Jimmy's got stuff going on in his life and the devil's attacking Jimmy and bringing things against him. To know that Jesus Christ is is looking to the Father, goes Father, I'm praying for Jimmy. I pray that you give him the, the wisdom to know what to do in the situation that he doesn't over that you give him victory in it that he has peace in whatever he's going through. And Jesus, your Savior, your King, is interceding for you to the Father. Amen. So, but Jesus is on is on the throne. Verse twenty one says he's seated at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality 
and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, right? So understand this. We're going back to this analogy of the head and the body. Remember, that's used all throughout the New Testament, talking about, uh, you know, that we're members of the body, members in particular. We're part of a body. It says that Jesus has become the head to all things. He's the head. Um, he has put he says put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is now understand follow the which is has given made Jesus the head over all things to the church, which the subject is the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So picture this: the Bible is saying in figurative language that Jesus, if the, if the church is is a person, represents a person. Jesus is the head, and the church is the body. Amen? Is that what the Bible says? The, 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 the church is the body of Christ. Well, how many of y'all know that it's not possible for your head to have dominion and authority over something that your body doesn't have authority and dominion over? Right? And that you don't identify people and their body and their head as separate entities. Yeah, we've said this before, used the example before. When Kirk comes to the door, I don't go, oh, look, there's, Kirk's, uh, there's Kirk and his head came with him. Amen. <laughs> or I don't say, oh, here comes Kirk and his body's with him. What? You understand, if your head's going any place and your body ain't with it, you're in a bad mess, right? Something, there's some dysfunction, right? Yeah, amen. Glory to God. But you understand this, that so when, so when I see Kirk's head, when I see Kirk, I don't differentiate his head from his body. I just say, there's Kirk. Kirk's coming in. You need to understand that if you are a believer, the Bible says that you, are, you have been baptized into Christ by the Holy Ghost. So when you got born again, you didn't just become an old sinner saved by grace. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if any man is in, Christ, is in Christ, you have become a new creature, new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Amen? You become a new creature. You used to be an old sinner. You got miraculously saved. The most miraculous thing that's ever taken place in the universe is that you were a spiritually dead being. You were dead, and you, by a confession of your faith that Jesus Christ, you made Jesus Christ your Lord, you confessed Him Lord, something happened that something that was dead came to life, and not only that, but that spirit that was dead had life breathed into it, and you were baptized into Christ. And so what I'm saying is, is and so, that, so much so that in the eyes of God the Father, when He looks at you, He cannot differentiate between you and His Son because you are in Christ Jesus. He sees Jesus. When He looks at Jesus, He sees you. When He sees you, He's looking at Jesus. Why? Because you have become one spirit with Him. The Bible says you have become one spirit with Christ. And so this is the thing. So if Jesus has become seated at the right hand of the Father in that place of authority, and all things are under his feet. Now, where are your feet at? Are your feet at the bottom of your head? Unless you're Mr. Potato Head, that ain't the case, right? You, know, you see those little Mr. Potato Head dolls? You know, Clay's got like three or four of them. Parks for like three or four of them. It's a weird thing. The potato's his head, but you stick the feet right on the bottom of them. So unless you miss, but but now for the rest of us, you have a body, you have a, a torso, 
you have legs, and down at the bottom of your legs is a little thing called feet, and that's in the body. So unless you're Mr. Potato Head, your feet are in your body. Well, this is the thing. The Bible says that God has placed all things, and you understand we're talking about principalities, dominions. You know, let, let's just read that again so we know what we're talking about. He says he's put, he said that he has he's placed him far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the ages to come. So there's principalities and there are powers and might and dominion. You understand he's talking about spiritual power, spiritual wickedness, unclean spirits, demonic power. And so Jesus has been placed far above all those things. So, so far above them that they're under his feet. But guess what? The church is his body, and the feet are in the body. So it means that if it's under his feet, it means it's, the, the, it's under the church. It means that the church shares the same authority on the earth that Jesus has been given. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go you, therefore, and make disciples of men. So this is where this source of authority flows from for us. Uh, in the body. Now, if we want you to take a look at, turn in your Bibles, if you will, um, to uh, Luke chapter 12. Tonight, we want to uh, just take a, uh, some time, and we want to look at uh, exercising authority over fear. Amen? How many of you ever had to face fear in your life? How many of you ever had the opportunity to be in fear? How many of you ever stared fear in the eye and turned around and ran screaming like a little girl when it showed up, right? Amen. I think we've all probably been there at times. And, you know, and I was, uh, you know, the world will, have, we need to understand. I've said this before. There's no such thing as the spiritual Switzerland. How many of you all know what I mean? World War One, World War Two breaks out. you got the Axis and Allies. you got the, 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 the Nazis. You have, you know, uh, and, and the allied powers fighting against each other. Switzerland's right there in the middle of it. But they just say, you know, time out, you know, we're neutral. We don't take a side. And so the Germans never attacked them. Uh, the allies never had a reason to attack them. They were neutral during the, both world wars, right? And we said this, you understand there's no such thing as spiritual Switzerland. There's only two sides. There, they, we understand there's only... Uh, two masters in the world. There's only two forces. There's, there's the kingdom of darkness, the dominion of darkness, and there's the kingdom of God's dear son on the earth, right? And so with uh, that in mind, you understand that, um, that God is saying uh, in the Bible here in, in Luke chapter 12, he is setting a precedent that you, ha you have to decide what you're going to seek after. Amen? And we've heard this before, we've read this out of Matthew, but I like it here in, in Luke for this because uh, it, it gives us a little different uh, angle at looking at stuff. Luke 12, starting with verse 29. Um, <clears throat> it says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink or have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, but your Father knows that you need these things. We are saying that there's two motivating factors in the world. There's two camps in the world. There's the, the dominion of darkness. There's the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that there are the two most powerful influencing forces uh, in the world are love and fear. Can we all agree that? You think about it, man. You, you think about it. Jimmy, when you were dating Nikki, 
Man, ooh, that's that little woman. She just makes me swoon. I'm going to go after her with all my heart. Can you do that? She just makes me swoon. Well, this is, man, you'd call her every day, maybe once a day, right? Maybe once an hour, right? Hey, baby, I love you, baby. Oh, baby, I love you. Man, you got you work like a dog all week just to scrape up some money so y'all can go out and go see a movie and have a little bit of dinner and, hey, baby, right? You know, listen to a little Barry White music, right? You know, praise God. Hallie, you know, that because love, man, it's a powerful motivator, right? Um, what is it? Third day, third day of that song. I've heard it said that a man would swim the ocean just to find the one that he loves. You ever heard that song? Great, I mean, a great song. I love that song. Love is a powerful motivating factor, man. People that, that do stuff that you scratch your head, you think, man, you're in your right head. You'd be goofy for doing that. Well, why they do it, man? Because all they had was love driving them to do something, right? Well, think about it. Other, how many other people have done things crazy out of fear. They're the two most powerful motivators in the world. And guess what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, uses love to motivate people. The devil likes to use fear. You turn on, If you can stand to listen to the news, amen, and I, I recommend taking them in small doses, right? Small doses, then get back in the Word, get back into having some praise and worship, have some prayer time, glory to God, get over and pray in the Spirit, get yourself refreshed. Because nobody's going to tell you anything happy on the news. They're all talking about how bad the economy is. They're talking about how you ain't going to be able to buy, buy your gas. They're talking about how the whole economy is just getting ready just to just implode, and we're all going to be plummeted into the dark ages, right? And it's going to be a global worldwide recession. Okay? Now, I'll say this. All that might happen, right? It might happen. Could it happen? Sure it could happen. Are there things that are going to happen and take place before Jesus Christ comes back to get the church that's going to set up the world to where there's going to be one person that's going to step up and say, I can take care of everybody's problem, and the world's going to flock to them, and people are going to be motivated by fear because they're going to be thinking, oh, my God, the economy's crashing. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Okay, that could all happen, but I do know that the Word says, David said in the Psalms, he said, I've been young, now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous. What's righteous mean? Those who are in right standing with the governing authority. I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their seed begging bread. Back at Kingdom Campaign a couple of uh, months ago, Pastor Earl was looking at that. Uh, what does it mean? I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging bread. We, when we think begging, we think you get off the interstate and there's a guy holding a little cardboard sign that says Any, you know, anything, change will help. We'll work. We think that's what begging means. But he studied that word begging out, and it meant seeking after. Didn't mean just like sitting with your hand out or or holding a tin cup out. You know, I'll take a little bit of money. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their seed having to go out seeking after bread. Well, what's Jesus saying here in Luke, and what did he say in Matthew? He read in Matthew. He said, he said, um, let me just read it for you. He says, do not seek what you should eat, what you should or what you should drink. Matthew's gospel says, don't act, you know, don't seek what shall you eat, what shall you drink, what shall you wear. He sets the priority. He says, uh, verse 31 says, But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be what? All these things will be what? Added to you. In other words, Jesus, the Lord head of the church, is saying, You don't be concerned. 
Don't get worried. Don't get fretful. Oh, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? How am I going to pay my money? What if they take my house? What if, they, you know, what if all this happens? Is God still going to be on the throne? Is your daddy who said, I will never leave you or forsake you, is he still going to be on the throne? And is his word still going to work? This is the thing. He said, Jesus said, if you will seek first my kingdom, in other words, and we understand that word kingdom, when we think kingdom, don't think of kingdom as place, think of kingdom as government, how he administrates things, right? Because for too long we've fallen into the, this is how we read it. Most people in church read, seek first heaven, seek first getting to heaven and staying in good terms with God, and then these things will be added to you. But that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say seek first heaven. He said seek first the kingdom of God. Oh, well, preacher, that means heaven. Well, it, yes, in one way, but, but no, but that word kingdom, it literally means the government of. Well, how many of you all know that I can go to a foreign country and, there's an em- and I can go to an embassy and that embassy represents the government of the United States of America. I can go to Mexico, and in Mexico City, there is an embassy that is the, the United States embassy. And that embassy is not the United States, but it represents the government of the United States of America. It represents the policies, how the government, what the policy, the foreign policy of the United States is. And guess what? American, uh, the, the laws of the United States of America are applicable on that piece of dirt, even though it's in a different country. Right? So Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And then verse 32, I like this right here. Verse 32 says, do not fear, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is on your handout. Amen? The first one, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I like that. God is not trying to withhold any good thing. The Bible even says in Psalms, it says, no good, the, you, O Lord, are a son and shield. Uh, no good thing will you withhold from those who uh, who serve you. God is, you understand, if there's good stuff being held back in your life, it's not God holding it back. Amen? Sometimes it's not even the devil holding it back. A lot of times it's just we getting over, we getting over in the flesh and we doing stuff contrary to the law of God, God's word, and the consequences that we reap are just natural. And you realize that sometimes we can just do it out of ignorance you don't know. It's not like you're deliberately doing something because that would be dumb, right? Because the Bible says no man hates his own flesh. And we understand the word hate just means to do something bad or harmful to. Hate doesn't, when you see hate in the Bible, it doesn't mean to have feelings of animosity toward. It means to do something to cause harm to. Just like love does not mean to have warm, mushy feelings in the Bible. It, love, love worketh no ill to his neighbor. So in other words, love means I only do that which is to your good. The Bible says no man hates his own flesh. No man does anything to inflict harm upon his own flesh. If it's in his right mind, okay, so I, say, I know some people that burn themselves and brand themselves and cut themselves and do things to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. I know somebody in the Bible that did that. And Jesus said, once you get on out of him and get up in them 3,000 pigs over there, he wasn't in his right mind. He was under the influence of something else. So Jesus is saying, do not fear. It is God's good place. God wants to give you the kingdom. And again, he, he, Jesus didn't say God wants to give you heaven. Now, heaven's there and it's real, right? Okay, but we, we're getting too far. We, we fast forward looking to something that, that we're putting out there at the end of life when we die, when Jesus is talking about something you can have right now, right here on the earth. He said, God, it's, his, God, it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
He wants to give you the kingdom because there are benefits to being in the kingdom. We talk about entitlement programs in the world. Man, the world ain't got that. Where do you think the world got the idea for entitlements and benefits? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, uh, and all is with me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. God's telling you, I got some benefits to give you. Thing is, though, the difference between the kingdom of, of heaven and the, and the governments of men is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you have to walk in righteousness if you're going to reap the benefits. In the world, you can live unrighteous and they'll just give you more. They'll actually will reward you for your unrighteousness. But the kingdom, God says, you live righteous before me, I'll not withhold any good thing from you. So he wants to give you uh, the kingdom. Amen? So, but what I want to see is, Jesus said, don't fear, it's the Father's will to give you the kingdom. So which tells me is that if we'll receive the kingdom, it'll cast out fear. It'll cast out fear. Let me tell you something. The people that are fretting, the people that are twiddling their thumbs, the people that are biting their nails down to the quick, the people that are looking at their 401k every day and watching the stock market go further down, and they're, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How am I going to make it? Right? Even if they're believers, it tells me they're not that they've not they're not walking in the peace of the kingdom, right? Because God's like, I got you covered. Now you understand, so you might not get all, you might not have all the toys that you want, right? But sometimes the toys distract you from the daddy, right? That's why I didn't give Clay his DS on the way up from St. Augustine today. He came up with me, you know, his little Nintendo DS. I had it in the truck the whole time. I snuck it out of the house in my pocket and took it out of the truck and set it in my little pocket on the side of my truck door there. Didn't tell him I had it. Why? Because if he'd have got the toy, he wouldn't have talked to his daddy on the way up the road. We had two and a half hours to talk to each other. I made a couple of phone calls, but me and my five-year-old son had conversations. And that's why I wanted him to come with me because I've been busy the past couple of weeks doing a lot of stuff for the church and haven't had a lot of time to just spend with him. I wanted him right up with me. Sometimes the toys will distract you from just spending time with daddy. But Jesus is saying, if you're in the kingdom and you've received the kingdom and you're walking in what God's kingdom has offered, it'll, you don't have to fear. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good will, it's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen? So it's, it's saying, and it goes on and says, don't seek things, seek uh, the kingdom. Amen? And so don't have fear. The two motiv- what are the two motivating influences in the world today? Love and fear. Love and fear. Right? Because people... People will do irrational things. People will do, and, and you understand, irrational just means irrational doesn't mean stupid. Is it irrational when when you come when when you walk up to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army's behind you and you leading this 1.5 million to 3 million crowd of former slaves that coming out of Egypt? Is it irrational when you're standing on uh, the banks of the river and say, uh, "Yeah, go on out there and just raise your rod up over the water"? That's irrational, ain't it? But it wasn't stupid, right? Because God met that. Is it, is it irrational when somebody uh, is chopping with an axe and the axe head falls in the river and you go, oh, man of God, and you know, the axe was borrowed. They go, uh, you know what, I think I'm How many of you, if that happened, would go, you know what, I know, I think I know what the solution is to this. You know, that axe head's in the river. I just believe, it. I think if I go get this stick and throw it in the water, that axe head's going to float back, uh, the axe head's going to swim right back up to the top of the water. Elisha did it, right? But how many of you know that wasn't that wasn't rational? But you understand they loved God. Moses loved God because you understand love. If you, Jesus said, "If you love me, you keep my commandments. You do what I tell you to do." 
Elisha loved God. He kept his commandments. Okay? So if you so love will motivate you to do things that the rational mind says, That's crazy, dude. You got this army coming up, you're gonna wave your stick out over the water. Okay, go ahead and wave your little stick. Okay. But he did it and he got results. Why? Because love will cause you to do it, but fear will cause people to do it too. When you act irrationally on God's word, it's called faith. And it can obtain the promises of God. The Bible says, by faith and patience, we obtain the promises of God, right? But you know that really all fear is, it's the antithesis of faith. It's really faith working in the opposite. What we say, if someone wants to get saved, we say, if you will believe in your heart, if you, if you, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God's raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, right? So you've believed something in your heart and you've confessed it with your mouth and you have obtained that in your life. Okay, so what if someone's walking around going, I just know I'm going to lose my job. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you understand this, even if you lose your job, your daddy God can get your provision to you. Your job is not your source. Because in the Hebrew and in the Greek, both the word father, it, it has to insinuate source. That word, the, the source. God is your source. He is your source of supply. He is your provision. And this is the thing, Elisha. He can get you. He can get you what you need through your job, or he can have the birds fly it into you. Because he's not. He, he is not contained. You can't put God in the box of how he's going to take care of you, right? But but fear will cause people to do things. Fear. You know that whole. You read that whole story of Job. And you can go study this out. Go read the book. You know, read through the book of Job if you can, uh, <laughs> because it's it's real. Read the book of Job though, and you'll find out that Job, when all this calamity came upon him, what did Job say when it all came in? He said, "That which I have greatly feared has come upon me." Job got over. Job got over in fear. He had this fear that gave an open door uh, to the enemy. Amen. You, but you understand this. Second Timothy one seven. I'll just, you can write this down. It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Some translations say discipline. God has not given us a spirit of fear. You need to realize fear is more than just an emotion. Fear, is, fear can maybe start as an, as an emotional response to stimuli. Amen, if we want to sound scientific about it. Fear can start as an emotional response to stimuli, but it's a spirit that will get a hold of you. A spirit of fear. A spirit of dread. A spirit. Now, I want to I differentiate something without really getting into it. There is what the Bible talks about, a fear of the Lord. Okay? And what, when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, we're talking about a wholesome dread of displeasing the Father. Now, some people, I'll give this example. Most people, if they had decent parents raised up, even if you had parents that were kind of abusive, right? I mean, because some people come from an abusive background. I would say that not very many people thought when they did something to displease their father, oh, my God, he's going to get a shotgun, he's going to kill me. He's going to get a knife and he's going to stab me in the heart and kill me. Okay? Most people didn't have a terror of their father going to kill them, right? You, But how many of you feared your daddy? Amen? I knew you don't get daddy riled up. You might give mama a little bit of lip if you were out of arm range, 
And it's all right when my mama was four, was four foot ten. I could, you know, I could lean back. You know, I could sit. You could lean back. But four foot ten, mad mama get a hold of you, and you had a bad day too, right? You might be crazy one day and think about giving mama some lip. But uh, how often do you get crazy enough to give daddy some? Why? Yeah, you're stupid. Yeah, boy, we'll cast that dumb devil out of you, right? You're stupid. Okay, why? Because you're like, mm, that's daddy. Now, I don't got to worry about him killing me, but now if daddy puts the smack down, it ain't going to be good. And I don't want to do something to displease daddy. So when, so we're supposed to have the fear of the, do you understand the fear of the Lord, just like you would have a fear of doing something that would displease your earthly father, is the type of fear we're supposed to have for God. But you never had a fear that, that if you did something to disappoint your dad, that he was going to go Freddy Krueger or Jason on you, right? He wasn't going to go axe murder on you. But you just did not want to displease him, even though you, because you knew there might be some negative consequences, but the fact is you're not going to be in terror for your life, right? And so we're differentiating. That, that fear of the Lord we're supposed to have, that type of fear. But we're talking about terror that, that will grip your heart, that will cause you to do stuff, uh, that will cause that will drive your life. It is a spirit. There's a spirit of fear. Amen. And so, but God's not given us that. God has given us a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Amen. Does that sound right? Jesus said, "You know, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you." I've given you authority, and authority is the right to use power. Right? I've given you that spirit of power. I've given you a spirit of love. That you love that you, that you love me. The Bible says that we love, and we, well, hopefully we'll get to this verse. Says that we love him because he first loved us. So Jesus, he, they have given he's we've been given a spirit of power, love, and some translations say a sound mind. Other ones say discipline. I like that discipline because this is why because we're called what we're called to be disciples. It means we have become disciples of Jesus. Our goal is to become as much like him as we possibly can because that's the whole goal of being a disciple. And if you are a discipline, if you are a person enrolled in a discipline, you are a disciple of something. Amen? And so anyway, so we've not been given this spirit of fear. So if God's not given someone a spirit, if, if there is a spirit of fear on someone, God's not giving it to people, who's it coming from? Amen? It's coming from the devil. Amen? So I want you to turn, to turn your, uh, there in Luke 12. Turn back to chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 real quick. This is, this is another one of my favorite passages of the Scripture. Man, I like, strong, I like it when we're talking about stuff. I like to talk about it strong. If we're talking about coffee, I want some strong coffee. Amen? If we're talking about going to the weight room, I like some strength in the weight room. If we're talking about cars, I like horsepower. I like stuff that talks about something strong because I, you know, I ain't into no little limp-wristed kind of little sissy-fied kind of something, right? If I want, if I, you know, if I want to get a, a sports car, don't give me no sports car with no four-cylinder engine. Uh-uh, give me V8, baby, right? I want something with some power, right? Strength. People look, at, people look up to strength. People respect strength. And this passage talks about strength. Um, Jesus says in Luke 11, starting with verse 20, um, he's just been casting out some demons. He's been exercising authority over demons and devils. And, uh, and the uh, priest said, oh, well, he cast out demons by Beelzebub. In other words, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus said, if, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, notice he didn't say arm. God don't even have to use his arm to cast out demons. Finger. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, he said, surely the 
kingdom of God has come upon you. And then it says, verse 21, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own uh, palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger one than he comes upon him and overcomes him and takes from him his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Amen? Jesus, Who's he talking about? Jesus is telling you a story. The devil was the strong man. The devil was the man who he had goods. He had come in. He had tricked Adam. We've said this before in, in uh, Mark chapter 4. The devil said, he said, uh, he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms. He's telling Jesus, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He said, because uh, all these kingdoms, I have the authority to give it to whoever I want to because it's been surrendered, because it's been uh, given to me. And that word given literally meant surrendered. When Adam yielded, the Bible says, remember we said, the Bible says in the book of Romans, whoever you yield yourself to obey, that person you make your master. So God said, don't eat the fruit. The devil said, oh, if you eat it, you won't die. Adam said, um, I know God said don't eat it, but I'm going to eat the fruit. When he ate the fruit, he yielded himself to what the words of Satan was and made Satan his master and, and the authority that God gave Adam to have dominion and rule on the earth. Adam gave that right over to the devil. He yielded it to him. Because why? Because he became the servant of, of the devil, right? He, he, he yielded himself to obey Satan. And the Bible says, whoever you obey, you, you make them their, your master, right? So Satan became the strong man of the, of the earth. He took possession. What were the possessions? The kingdoms of the earth. All, he told Jesus. He said, he said, I own it all. I have all the authority over all of it, and I can give it to who I want to. And Jesus is talking about here, because he's ta- this is in the context of him talking about demon power. Do we see that? That he just got through casting them. And Jesus says, when a strong man armed guards his palace, his, his goods are safe. I mean, how many of you all know that from the, the fall of man until Jesus came on the scene, Satan had a strong, had, he had it all under control on the earth. He was exercising a monopoly of authority on the earth, Right? Oh, but guess what? When one, one stronger than him comes and binds him and plunders his house and divides his house as spoil. Amen? Praise God. Jesus is saying, he's speaking in this parable, he's saying, I'm the stronger one. Yeah, the strong man, he'd been guarding the house, he'd been guarding all his goods, he's armed, and he'd been holding it, but I'm stronger than him, and I'm overtaking him, and I'm going to bind him, and all the authority that he illegitimately took from Adam and took from man, he says, I'm taking that, I'm plundering his house, and I'm taking that back, and I'm dividing the spoil. Who's he dividing it with? Hallelujah, with the church. With those who are born again, those who have made Jesus Christ Lord, the ones that the Word says to as many as received Him, He gave the power to become what? The sons of God. He's divided the plunder back with us. He's, given, he's placed us in the kingdom, and He's divided that plunder among us. Amen? Because He was the strong man. Hallelujah. Well, you understand this. If the strong man... Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. How did the devil execute... This authority, how did he hold on uh, to this authority that he had? How, how was he guarding? Let's put it this way. How was he guarding his palace? Remember that passage there? said, when a strong man armed guards his palace, his goods are safe. Well, what was Satan armed with? What was the weapons of his, uh, of his war against mankind? How did he exercise the authority over man? Hebrews 2, starting with verse 15. 
Well, let me back up. Let's, let's look at verse 14, Hebrews 2, 14. Insomuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, and through, uh, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. Jesus himself shared in the same uh, uh, flesh and blood, coming in flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and so he came to destroy the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Amen. You understand there was a, a, a legitimate ruler on the earth. Who did God in the beginning? We just read, we read this. Who did God say, I give you the authority to exercise dominion on earth? Who did God give it to? He gave it to man. He gave it to Adam, right? But you understand that, that Satan tricked man and man turned that dominion. He yielded to the devil. He yielded his authority over to him. And so here's man, and I've said this before, and I'm going to point this out. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him, right? Oh, the psalmist asked God, God, what is man? You understand, and I want you to know this, God did not make junk when he made man. So neither did, and so if we believe in the plan of redemption and we believe in the blood of Jesus, it's impossible for you to think of any, any brother or sister who's ever been born again as junk because God don't make junk. God don't make inferior products. There's no one race that's better than the other one. We're all, there's one race, there's the human race, right? You're going to get all hung up on what color somebody's wrapper is. They're a man. It's the spirit of a man, right? And this is how, how wonderful and glorious God made man. Do you know that Satan wasn't even strong enough just to come take what he wanted from Adam? I've said this before. Satan came in and had to deceive Adam into giving him what he wanted. The point is, is if you're stronger than someone, we just, if we just read this, if we just read this in Luke chapter 11, when a strong man, when somebody, they bowed up and they got their stuff, when somebody stronger comes, they just walk in, smack, smack, I'm taking what I want. The strong man doesn't have to come in and go, hey man, uh, you know, you, you won't die if you eat it. You can eat it and live. No, God didn't say. The strong man doesn't have to resort to deception to get what he wants. Strong man come in, smack you around, take what he wants. Tie you up, I'm taking what I want. How did Satan get what he wanted? He had to come in and deceive. He couldn't come in to smack Adam around and take what he wanted. Why? Because when God made man, he was made in the image and the likeness of God, and the image and likeness of God can whoop the devil on any given day. The devil had to, to resort to deception. Amen? He had to resort to deception to deceive man. Well, and so the way he held man in bondage was through fear of death. We, you know, we discussed this, there was a couple, uh, a couple folks we discussed before service, that the very first thing that happened when Adam sinned, guess what? He got in fear. Because guess what? He wanted to go start making him some britches. i got to get me some leaves and sew them together and, hi and hide my naked. I'm scared. What if God catches me like this? Fear came in immediately. The first fruit that was born from his disobedience was fear. And guess what? That fear, it did, did fear direct how he lived his life? Yeah. Oh, I gotta find me some leaves and sew them up here and make me some pants. It's funny when we go, when I went to Bible school, there was uh, one translation of the Bible that said, you know, the Bible, most translations say that God uh, the, 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 or the Adam and Eve took fig leaves and sewed them together and made aprons for themselves. There was one uh, old translation that said they made britches, and that's why I said I gotta get me some pants up in here. I gotta go get me some leaves and sew. Why? Because I don't want God to see me naked. 
I'm scared. Fear came on man. So that fear that that came from man's disobedience and knowing man, things ain't right with me and daddy now, that fear kept man in bondage all his life. And this is what the, the Bible says, that Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death. And understand, we're not talking just about when your body stops breathing. We're talking about spiritual death and to release those who through the fear of death were their whole lifetime subject to bondage. The devil uses fear to keep man in bondage to do his will. Amen? Uh, turn to Romans chapter 12 real quick. Romans chapter 12. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse, starting with verse 8. So Jesus, keep this in mind. I want us to stay on the train of thought. Jesus came to destroy him who had the power of death to destroy the devil and to, and to free those who their whole life who had been held in bond, who had, fear had held them in bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to serve the, to serve the enemy, right? To serve Satan. Uh, Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 8, says, <clears throat> and I have, that is completely the wrong one. Brother Kirk, help me out here. Uh, I'm looking for, we have not received a spirit of fear. 8.14, thank you. Romans 8.14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of what? Of bondage again to what? To fear. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Amen. And the Spirit himself bears witness that we are the children of God. So what the Word is telling us is that when you got born again, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Why? Because that book of Hebrews says yeah, you were already in bondage to that. You were already in bondage to that. So if we didn't receive the spirit of, of, of bondage unto fear, we received the spirit of freedom unto love. Right? God is undoing. Remember the Bible says it was Acts 10.38 that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came, the thing that the devil used to keep man in bondage and in fear, Jesus said, I'm taking care of it. You're going to walk in authority over it. It's not going to have authority over you anymore. You're not going to have your life driven and controlled and directed by fear. Amen? Um, uh, the Bible says, here, here this, um, I want to give you these to fill in on your sheet real quick. Uh, we are seated, we already talked about this, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. It is a position of authority. That's the second thing on your sheet. Then also, uh, the third one, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Uh, the fourth thing, fear causes people to be held in bondage. Amen? It causes people to be uh, held in bondage. Also, fear includes uh, torment. We'll look at that scripture here in a minute. Amen? So, we've not received that spirit again. Well, what spirit did you receive? Amen? Hallelujah, 1 John, the epistle of John, 1 John 4, 4. Amen. It says that the greater ones, let's just turn there and read that real quick, give you the whole verse. 1 John chapter 4. Hallelujah, John, 1 John 4, 4. It says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. I like it. I still like a King James Version. It says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Well, who's in you? 
Well, Christ is in me. I'm in Christ. But who specifically is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Ghost, the third member of the Godhead. He's in you. Well, do we believe that the Holy Ghost is greater than the devil? Do we believe that if the Holy Ghost and the devil got in a fist fight that the devil's getting whooped? Amen? Well, guess what? That member of the Godhead's in you. He's in your spirit. Just put, put, touch, touch yourself on chest and say, the greater one's in me. The greater one's in me. You're not the lesser one. You're not, you're not one that, you're not, the, you're not the second class one. You're not second place one. The greater one's in you. That word greater, it literally means larger, bigger. The bigger one's in you. Amen? Like Elisha, when, when the king sent the army out against him and the army's coming in to get him and, and the servant's getting in fear. And Elijah's, Elisha prays and says, God, open his eyes that he'll see what I see. And when he prayed for him, the gift of the spirit, of the, the gift of the spirit, the, the discerning of spirits was in operation. And his servant looked around and saw angels and chariots of fire and horses around him and, and realized, whoa, there's more people on our side than what they've got. And one, and one of the angels could have whooped all of them, but they're outnumbered and outclassed. Well, you understand, you got the greater one in you. You're not on this thing alone. You're not doing this thing alone. Remember, Jesus said in John's Gospel, we're talking about the, the comforter coming, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you to be the devil's whipping boy. I'm not leaving you at the mercy of Satan. Amen? No, parent, no good parent would give birth to their child and then take that newborn baby and set that baby out, you know, out in the woods where, uh, where wolves or cougars or something prowls around, right? Why? Because that baby's dead if you do that. Well, how much more if we, being earthly parents, know how to do good things and do right by our children, how much more, how much more, how much more does your heavenly Father know to love you and to do good for you and to take care of you and watch out for you? The greater one's in you. You don't have any reason to be walking in fear. You don't have any reason to be wondering, oh, I wonder where my next meal is going to come from. I wonder where, uh, you know, how am I going to pay for my clothes? How am I going to make it? I'm going to tell you what, darling. If and when the wheels come off the entire global economy, you are God's little darling and he's going to take care of you. He is not going to abandon you and you're not going to starve to death. You're not going to be, your children, you're not going to watch your children die of starvation. God's going to take care of you. You don't need to walk in fear. You don't need to allow that the spirit of fear to attach itself to you and to dominate your life. Amen? Hallelujah. Well, you understand. Let's take a look. It says that the Bible says over there in Timothy, Second uh, Timothy 1, 7, it says we've been given a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Turn, uh, we're there in First John. Let's look at verses, uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 17 through 19. <clears throat> it says, Love has been perfected among us in, in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, as he is, get a hold of this, as he is, so will we be when we die and go to heaven. Is that what your Bible says? My Bible says, it says, because as he is, so are we in the world. Now, it says, love has been perfected in us. Again, what does love mean? <coughs> I only do that which is for your good. So the conscious realization that God only does that which is to my good. <coughs> you understand this. It says, so you'll have boldness in the day of judgment. How many of you know there's a judge, there, there, are, there are times that we might call judgment day? Now, if we understand that the Bible talks about there is going to be a day of judgment when all but, where unbelievers are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, unbelievers are going to stand before the great white throne judgment. 
But how many of you know that in one sense of the word, do we believe in sowing and reaping? Does the Bible teach us in Galatians that whatever a man sows to that, whatever a man sows that shall he also reap? You realize that there are several times, how many of y'all have experienced times in your life, and you understand this, don't always think of reaping as something bad, because I'm going to talk about it in a bad context, but it's also good. If you plant good things and you sow good things, doesn't the Bible say if you sow to the Spirit, you'll the Spirit reap life everlasting? If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption, right? Well, how many of y'all know that when that, that due season comes and harvests come in, if it's a bad thing, it can feel like a day of judgment, Right? Well, how many know there is a time of judgment coming that when nations and countries and, and p- groups of people do things and sow to corruption, when a nation can tell God, get out of our public school system, when a nation can say what God calls an abomination, we're going to let people, we're going to make it legal for two people of the same sex to get married. God calls it an abomination. When we try to drive God out of the marketplace, when we try to call good evil and evil good, how many know that people that there's a nation that's that's sowing? And when judgment comes, right? When when that harvest comes in, it can look a lot. It, it's like judgment, right? It is judgment coming in for you're reaping what you've sowed. Well, this verse right here says, "Having been perfected in love, knowing that God's only going to do for us which is our good." It says we have boldness in the day of judgment. You have boldness in the day of judgment, which means that if there, if when that day of reckoning comes, right, when things, when when spending more money than the government's had uh, for years comes to pass, you understand? I'm just talking. I'm using this as a natural example, right? I don't want you thinking that well, this church just talks about natural stuff all the time. I'm using this because we can understand this. Is that when that's going to come home, you're going to reap that someday. You can only do that. How many have you know you can only go out and get all the credit cards you can get approved for and max them out for so long before something hits, right? Well, this word is saying if we've been living righteous, right, and we love God, we're only doing When that day of judgment comes, we have boldness because as he is, we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who has been made perfect in love... Uh, has not, he, he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. So in other words, perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Two things, and, and I see this two ways. If we lo- The Bible says he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Now understand, love means I'm only doing that which is real good. When God gives us commandments to live by, God's saying there are spiritual laws in effect that if you break them, you're going to reap consequences. But I love you enough to give you commandments to tell you if you'll live by these, you it'll be for your good, right? But then the other thing is, is if we love him, how, what did Jesus say the criteria for proving that we love him was? Is that we keep his commandments. So, perfect love, knowing, and, and perfect means mature or complete. Perfect love would be us secure in knowing that God only does which, that which is our good and that we're going to keep his commandments and that he's got our back, right? That he's going to take, that God is going to take care of us. And you don't have to live in fear. Amen. Uh, I'll give you the rest of these real quick. Jesus bound the strong man <coughs> and divided the plunder of his house. Next one, perfect love casts out fear. Okay, and real quick, we're just going to ask you a couple of questions. We do want to give you the opportunity for participation here in the Bible study. Um, how does fear keep people in bondage to the enemy? Just, I mean, then there's no one right answer. I'm just like looking for examples. Maybe just how, how does fear keep people in bondage to the enemy? 